Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus, a central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions. You're listening to a Hindustan Times production brought to you by HD Smartcast. Hi, this is Manjula Narayan, National Books Editor, Hindustan Times, and this is the Books and Authors Podcast. It's a weekly podcast where I speak to authors who've got a new book out. Hi, so today we have with us Zach Oya who's written Digesting India, a travel writer's subcontinental adventures with the tummy. So, uh, you know, and then, um, hi, Zach. Hello. 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 So, you know, I was reading this book and like I said earlier, you know, it's mm. made me laugh at many points, but it's also uh, very informative, you know. So, to begin with, tell tell your listeners, you know, the listeners what the book is about. So, you know. We can take it from there. It's about your travels in India and about eating and, you know, all that. But from your perspective, you know, just... Well, from my point of view, it really started during the pandemic and when there was lockdown and one couldn't travel because up to then I've been working 25 years as a travel writer with various magazines like National Geographic Traveler and others. And um, so large part of my year was spent traveling. And of course, I'm interested in food and, you know, so traveling, eating, drinking on the road. And then suddenly there's a lockdown and restaurants are shut and you have to sit at home and look at uh, other people posting on the internet what they're cooking and, you know, that kind of thing. And in some countries, they were luckier and they didn't have uh, lockdowns, but they could go out to restaurants. But here in uh, in South India, at least, it was fairly strict. Like you couldn't go out, you could hardly go out into the streets, uh, even mm-hmm. just for a, a, a stroll. Mm-hmm. So as I was sitting home, I was thinking like, okay, what do I do, you know, to have a little bit of fun? And then I started thinking that I should now look back at all these travels that I've been doing over the last few decades and just see if there's a red thread. And I pretty soon I discovered that uh, although I write about heritage and literature and culture and other things, I noticed that food is like the red thread and like uh, how I I would go to different places and try different kinds of foods and somehow also how that instinct had evolved over years because when I first came to India some 30 years ago, I was very naive. I thought, oh, it's, uh, Indian food is only about rice and curry. But then as I was been traveling across the country, you know, from north to south and west to east and visiting, you know, not every part of the country, but many different parts. I noticed how diverse Indian food actually is. There's so yes. many different cuisines and you can't really talk about like one Indian cuisine. But, yes. but you, if you compare India with some uh, other place, you'd have to compare with Europe where you have, you know, the Italian food, the Greek food, the French food, the British food. British food mm-hmm. is hardly anything. I mean, that's like uh, chicken tikka masala mostly <laughs> and mm-hmm. German food and Swedish food. And so you have so many different cuisines within Europe. So somehow, if you compare India with any other place in the world, you have to really compare with a continent, not just mm-hmm. like a single country. Mm-hmm. So uh, that revelation when it came to me, and I thought uh, that might be a very interesting book then to uh, do um, a journey through the different uh, Indian cooking styles and the different scenes of the different parts of the country and just see like what put together a kind of picture of that because I had already traveled to, to these places. Mm. Um, so it was more about, you know, organizing it in a in an interesting, sensible manner so that it will be a readable book and people will find that. Um, because I've noticed also within India, for example, if some tourists come from Andhra Pradesh to, let's say, Karnataka, they'll mm. be looking for Andhra food. Yes. And if, or if somebody from Karnataka travels to Delhi, they'll be looking for uh, Karnataka-style South Indian thali. So uh, people, many people who travel within India, they'll be trying to look for their home food rather than the, you know, the local food. 
they'd be looking for something familiar. So I thought with this book, let me try to uh, discover the unfamiliar. And many, of course, many foods that I mentioned in the book are familiar to lots of people. But but I also found cooking ways of cooking that are quite unusual compared to you know what we typically think of as Indian food. So you know, tell me what about that bit. You know what people think of as typically Indian food and what you found was different, you know? Well, the typically Indian foods that, I mean, I appreciate those also like tandoori chicken. So I went to Punjab to have a very nice yes. authentic tandoori chicken and because that should be done. And I mm. in Delhi, of course, I tried many different charts because Delhi is really famous for charts. So I, I do eat the typical foods that people know about. But there's mm. also like if you go to the Northeast, for example, in many of those areas, they, they put rather little spice compared to typical Indian food and rather little yes. oil. And they yes. rely more on herbs and steaming and, and it's still tasty food, but it's mm. with, with very little oil and very little chili and very little masala. Yes. So, and there are other parts where, where, for example, in, um, like when we, one talks about Tamil food, Everybody knows chetina, the spicy chetina food, yeah. and uh, which is very rich and, you know, uh, basically because it's a rich culture, so their food is also rich. But then there are other um, parts of um, of Tamil Nadu where they cook very differently, where they don't add so much spices, but where they rely much more on, you know, subtle way like um, uh, Kongu Nadu, is an interior mm-hmm. area of, uh, yes. of Tamil Nadu. Uh, around towns like Erode and um, and uh, these kind of places, mm-hmm. so their food is very very different from the the Chettinad food and and then you have so many fusion cuisines like in Goa you have that Portuguese flavored food and Pondicherry you have the the very interesting blend of French and Indian food yes. and uh, so, so there are many things like that that. One doesn't immediately think of when one thinks of Indian food, like the, the, the many forms of fusion food. And the mm. fact that like many of the really most famous Indian dishes, like say like the pork vindaloo in Goa, mm. that's actually uh, originally sort of a blend of Portuguese and um, Indian way of cooking. Although yes. it's like in, if you go to an Indian restaurant in London or somewhere that, like that, the vindaloo will be like a you know star Indian dish, especially among young men who want to prove yes. that they're very macho and eat something super spicy. And you don't <laughs> think of that, oh, oh, but it actually came from Portugal via India to yeah. London. Yeah. So that kind of... Um, interesting discoveries like once you start thinking about it what is this food actually like what influences are there one can see that indian food i mean just like india as a culture is very multicultural yes in many ways yes so that that's reflected in the food i mean it is a subcontinent after all so we have so many cultures and yeah but i found mm. what i found interesting about your book also was that you know uh, your perspective is i mean you're a, uh, you're an outsider insider right i mean you've lived here so mm. long you know you, your your wife yeah. is in so you have a perspective that's um, different from somebody who's you know actually only lived in Scandinavia, only lived in Europe. Mm. So how has that enriched you know your taste, your writing, also in your opinion? You know, because I mean I can see it as a reader, but from your, mm. uh, what do you think? You know? well, like uh, like I mentioned uh, when I first came to India, it's now what is it like 32, 33 years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was very naive and I didn't really understand food very much. So the just the challenge of trying to get into Indian food is I think intellectually very enrich- enriching. Like we, we don't think of food as an intellectual thing. We think of food as oh, eat it and then we get tummy full and then we are happy. But actually, if you look at food a little bit more closely, uh, how it is made, how it is different. Uh, for example, I think somebody has said that in India, every 100 kilometers you travel, the food will change. Yes. Like if you travel across South India from Chennai to the coastal Karnataka, for example, the dosa will be very different. You know, yes. in Chennai, it will be that crispy, uh, thin dosa. Then inland, it will be thicker dosas. And 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 so they, 
so so just to try to uh, understand that complexity mm-hmm. um is a intellectual challenge and so i think my iq has doubled uh, <laughs> while i've been working on this book because um i mean you see what i mean um, it's um it's like if suppose a scandinavian person like me comes to india first all they eat is palak paneer okay seriously whether they're in south india or north india they'll always ask for palak paneer because they just love it in uh, in in um, there in sweden and that and tandoori chicken and they don't realize that uh, tandoori chicken is primarily a punjabi dish although you get it mm. all over india but you'll mm. get the best in the punjab area chandigarh and and there Yeah. And and in South India, if you come to eat, like if you go to Mangalore, for example, which mm. is a coastal town in Karnataka, mm. uh, you should not ask for tandoori chicken and palak paneer, but you should ask for like a fish curry or a crab masala or something like that, which is yes. like what their food is about. But mm. uh, the many tourists will still like wherever they go in India, they will insist on having palak paneer and tandoori chicken. even if you go to calcutta where they have all these lovely seafood dishes ilsa and and everything mm-hmm. uh, very sophisticated food they will still be looking for tandoori chicken and palak paneer mm-hmm. so in a way the book is also trying to break this sort of stereotype at the oh i mean it's more like how to say i mean trying to open one's eyes to the complexity of indian food and and trying you know many different kinds of uh, of foods that are available mm-hmm. rather than simplifying rather than simplifying it that into like a or oh, this is an indian meal so that's what i mean with you know it's a intellectual challenge to try to understand indian food okay okay i found it fascinating like you know the, the kerala chapter when you're looking uh, in talisheri or looking for mussels and you know when you say that uh, um, like um, during a childhood and you know you had a great thing for mussels and they eat a lot of mussels mm. in scandinavia i had no idea so you know that sort of thing i found that very interesting because coming from two two different angles right also like mm. who is uh, who is your like You know, I mean, as an Indian, I'm reading the book and I'm getting a lot of out of it. But so, who's your target readership? Because I'm sure even Europeans can read this and get you know across cultures. So, who did you think yeah. of when you were writing it? Well, I was more thinking of myself, really. Like, what kind of book I would want to read? Like, okay. what kind of book I would have found useful when I started traveling in India? Mm. And um, uh, because often books on food, they'll be either they'll be you know cookbooks with all the recipes and they explain how it is or there mm. be uh, people maybe traveling and trying different foods but like i wanted to uh, have a very clear you know a geographical thread in the book so that like in um, when whenever i travel i try to find that local dish and, and for example uh, about the mussels in thalassery that you mentioned mm-hmm. uh I remember like somewhere I met a few uh, Malayalis uh, people mm-hmm. from Kerala who to, who came from Thalassery and they told me that all oh, the best uh, thing to eat in India is you have to go to Thalassery and you have to try the mussels uh, what they call kalumakaya mm-hmm. so then I had it in the back of my mind you know like on the what you call bucket list or whatever that one day I should go there and really you know eat a lot of this because because it also it's very rare to get shellfish inland here. I mean most part of India um you won't get like f- really fresh mussels whereas when I finally came to Talasari one just walks towards the uh, ocean ocean mm-hmm. side where the the fish market is and there people will be sitting with their baskets full of mussels selling them straight you know to customers mm-hmm. um, straight from the sea basically to their customers mm-hmm. and lots of re- several restaurants were doing it So of course like they all don't do it very well so it took a while to find like the perfect uh, restaurant so i had to spend a week there just eating mussels until i until i got that uh, the really best um, uh, experience so yeah. um, so so that way it's been like an adventure like i mean other people do adventure sports and break their legs i go and eat and uh, break my tummy <laughs> tell me you know i'm like still stuck on the kalumakaya how mm. do they cook it in uh, in uh, uh, in sweden right in uh, europe in general they often uh, steam them so 
like you'll put them in a big pot and maybe put either wine or beer or just salt water and you steam them until they open and then they're often eaten with finger chips maybe uh, or but they're also eaten like uh put in salads or pastas or uh, all all kinds of things and you also okay. get um uh tinned mussels which are like mm -hmm. pre-cooked so you can just put them on your sandwich or uh, mm -hmm. so there, there are quite a lot of different ways to making them and and there's quite mm -hmm. a lot of way I, the only way mussels are not eaten in scandinavia is as a dessert you don't eat them with sugar oh. like sweet yeah. <laughs> that would be awful <laughs> mussels with mm -hmm. sugar yeah <laughs> but uh, and the other thing is also that that in uh, those countries in uh, northern europe they often uh, like to retain as much as possible of the natural flavor so if they spice it they just try to enhance the national natural mm -hmm. flavor mm -hmm. whereas in uh, many cases in thalassery for example they do put a little bit too much spice so that ultimately mm -hmm. you know if you get like a muscle biryani you don't even or pulao it, it could be like any vegetable or uh, anything mm -hmm. so um, but in some restaurants they do it really well like they're very juicy and and just like a perfect masala to boost the flavor ah. Yeah, I'm getting hungry already. Anyway, I was hungry reading the book. <laughs> oh, and and one uh, one best way to have mussels, of course, in um, in uh, Thalassery is uh, actually not in Thalassery, but in a neighboring town called Mahe, which is a part mm. of the Pondicherry territory. They mm. have these really shady bars there. Yes, they make it as a bar snack. So they fry it with some coconut and chili and curry patta. So and as a bar snack and together with a beer, it's a it's a fantastic. Uh, small afternoon snack and you know you mentioned there about mahi and how a person go driving through it would think just that it's one line of uh, uh, of liquor shop, uh, shops and that's exact yeah. i mean i did drive through it and that's exactly what i thought i said what french calling there nothing to see here yeah. and then you've said yeah. that you go into it and then there are all these bungalows and very colonial french architecture and all yeah. that but uh, one would not know that going through the main street for sure. Sure. So yeah, not unless you stop and uh, walk off the main road and go through all. It's actually a very small place, so it doesn't take much more than forty-five uh, minutes to walk around. Ooh. But pretty much as soon as you leave that uh, that uh, main the highway that passes through where all the wine shops are, then you'll be like in a very different place, which looks like a mix of a small Kerala town and a small French town, wow. like a village. Oh, quite fascinating. I, yeah, so it's really nice. Like uh, when I first went there, I thought, oh, I didn't, don't have to stay here. But then I found like an old old hotel in an old colonial bungalow, and which had uh, they had nicely renovated. So then I thought, okay, let me stay here. So on an impulse like that, and that's like then I discovered more and more about the hidden side of Mahi. Mm. You know, while I was reading this book, I was thinking, you know, just a few weeks ago, I spoke to Charmaine O'Brien on the po podcast, you know, on her new book, uh, Eating the Present, Tasting the Future, Exploring India. And, you know, I through her changing food. And I was like thinking that, wow, I read that book and now I'm reading this book. And they seem like uh, almost companion volumes, strangely enough. Though she's talking about the future, you know, yeah, 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 and you, their styles are of course very different, or maybe just in my head because it's about Indian food and about the varieties of Indian food, you know. So that was also like so it gave me I had this sort of like uh, you know double vision sort of feeling while I was reading this book also because and this is uh, um, you know. It's personal and plus, but still, it does give you a lot of information about um, about food and about places as well, not just the food. Mm. Like the mm. chapter on Allahabad, you know, I feel like going to Allahabad. I've never been there. I read your uh, read your chapter on Allahabad, and now I'm 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 certain I will go. So you know, yeah, it's a, I would highly recommend Allahabad also because it's one of those places that has sort of um, how should I put it. Uh, it's um, it has retained a lot of old characters like where lots of Indian cities are very busy building metros and big malls and things like that. In Allahabad, yeah. there are of course big shops in the main road and and things, but there are also like a lot of these old places that date back to nineteen fifties, nineteen sixties, 
and where they still cook that kind of food that used to be eaten at that time. There's one of those few places where you actually find that kind of restaurants uh, where you can sort of time warp yourself back some 50, 60 years. And and that I thought that was really nice. I mean, of yeah. course, they have modern restaurants and I think there was a McDonald's also in the main street. But 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 to discover this older restaurant culture, which is very genteel and very, you know, uh, families kind of dress up and go out for their Sunday lunch and and uh, and you feel transported to a very different kind of place as compared to like what we have now in lots of cities. People go to malls and they eat all kinds of uh, of uh, trendiest foods or you go to some gastro pub or something like yeah, that. Yeah. But just to experience uh, uh, a bit of uh, restaurant history because yeah. restaurants also was one of the things I discovered. Like we who are like born in uh, in the 20th century, we've grown up with restaurants and we take restaurants for granted. But mm. but restaurants as a phenomenon is really only 100, 200 years old. I mean, even mm. in the West, restaurants started coming up in France uh, after the French Revolution when all the royalty were beheaded and their chefs had to get new jobs. So they started restaurants and and serving wholesome food to the masses after the French Revolution. And in India as well, uh, back in the 19th century, you, you hardly had many restaurants. But then mm. the Parsi started to start these Irani cafes in Bombay mm. uh, some hundred years ago. They, I mean, that boom uh, was around 100, 130 years ago. And, and the modern restaurants started coming around the time of... Uh, you know, end of the colonial period, really, and the first decade of independence, you would have iconic restaurants like Moti Mahal being set up in Delhi by by uh, partition refugees, mm. uh, and um, and so a lot of the many of these things are not that old, really. But it's uh, really nice to like to go to say Connaught Place in Delhi, and you still mm. find places like United Coffee House, which yes. has been around since uh, around 1950 something mm. or like in bangalore there's koshis yes which has uh, retained a lot of that 1950s vibe and even on the menu you still find dishes that were popular at that time and that that they just keep on the menu uh, uh, and so you can um, in a way you can explore uh, history also through you know visiting the right restaurants that that actually care to showcase uh, you know, food from older times. Yeah, you know, and then going back to this Allahabad, what struck me really was when you, you know, when you wrote about Russian salad. Now, Russian salad in the late 80s, like, you know, when one was a teenager, it it was like a very common thing. And I realized mm. after reading this chapter that I haven't eaten a Russian salad in years. <laughs> mm. You know, I mean, it's not as... Yeah. Uh, frequently away. I don't see it anywhere now. It's just vanished. Whereas it used to be a mainstay of a lot of menus uh, yeah. in the late 80s at least, you know, even the 90s yeah. I think, yeah. I would um, think that that has to do also with um, you know, post-liberalization you started to look for different kinds of foods and suddenly, you know, yeah. get, you get tacos and you get pizzas and all. Whereas yes. this uh, Russian salad and also there's something called chicken a la kheer. Yes, you yes. still get in <laughs> some restaurants. Those are all from that era when India had, uh, you know, little closer ties with the Soviet Union yeah. before Soviet Union vanished. And uh, and there are even, uh, yeah, I think uh, I've come across other, also some pasta stroganoff is there, which sounds yes, very yes. to me. Yes, stroganoff. So that yeah. kind of things. Uh, <laughs> Like, and they still live on in a few restaurants, um, luckily. But yeah. by and large, people uh, have moved on to more fancy food, I think. Like people yeah. want uh, to have Thai and, and all kinds of, which is also good. I mean, it's nice that people want to explore different cuisines from all over the world, Mexican, Thai and uh, Mediterranean and uh, African and what all is there nowadays. But, yeah. but there's still a, a certain nostalgic value in these foods that, uh, like, like you're pointing out, I, I think they started vanishing around the first half of the 1990s and yeah. the end of the 1990s, it was all very different. People wanted more thrilling food on the menus. Yeah. 
Yeah, you know, and I just remembered I used to have Russian salad like really often, and it's only and that's like so many decades ago. And your book mm-hmm. sort of suddenly brought the taste back into my mouth, and I yeah. was thinking, wow, it would be so nice to have a restaurant with nostalgic mm-hmm. foods, you know, of the eighties and nineties. I'm sure it'll be a big hit, at least with a certain set of the population. I don't know about younger people; mm-hmm. they might find it like funny, duddy, but they might also find it new. Yeah, I mean there is a lot of food nostalgia happening. So, like if you go to certain restaurants, you will still come across. Like in Calcutta, there are also restaurants that try to recreate that old Park Street cuisine because yeah. there was a time when Park Street, you know, had lots of uh, uh, restaurants where there were bands playing, and then they had all yes. these uh, traditional old dishes and. And there, so some restaurants that consciously try to revive uh, these dishes from uh, way back then, and then there are um, and there are few restaurants. Uh, what's it called? I think Mukambo, which is on the corner of Free School Street, mm-hmm. which actually has uh, remained. Uh, I think I I never went there in the 1950s because I wasn't born in the 1950s. <laughs> but I get the feeling that apart from the rates having gone up a little bit, everything else about the restaurant is exactly the same. And apparently, at that time, they had some Italian chef who left behind a legacy of of many interesting, you know, Indo-European dishes, mm. uh, which you can still eat in in that particular restaurant. But I, you know, I'm 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 thinking that um, you must have like. intestines of steel because i mean you may you riff on it and you make fun of it in the prologue and mm. all but um i don't know to be a food writer a successful food mm. writer fun has to also not be very uh, uh has to be very brave because you know mm. I, I, you have to go out there and say i will eat this come what may <laughs> you mm. know so clearly you have that Mm. Yeah, it's a yeah, it's a bit of a challenge, and one has to have a strategy <laughs> because otherwise one can get quite sick if one just yes. goes on mindlessly hogging. But you need to pace yourself and give uh, breaks between the meals uh, mm. so that you can digest one thing and you know clean your mind and tummy from the previous meal before you go on to the next. So, but but yeah, periodically it becomes mindless hogging. Like it's it's really hard to avoid. Like when you, uh, especially if you're in a town only for three four days and you have to try twenty restaurants or something like that. Twenty twenty five. Then you, it's really difficult uh, to 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 to. I mean, it can be difficult to survive. But yeah. um, but then there are. Um, a uh, digestive pills and emotional <laughs> pills as you sort of eat as dessert and if you notice i don't talk much about desserts and all the whole in the book yeah. so there i try to cut out certain uh, things that might become excessive uh, you know so if i had tried everything on the menu in a restaurant i i would probably mm. be you know um, not be alive today to tell the story <laughs> but um, um, yeah Yeah, and then to go to the other extreme, the the ashram, the the Gandhi ashram, Sevagram, where you mm-hmm. went and stayed. I mean, yeah, I remember reading uh, Gandhi on diet, and you know that that famous book of his, which you mm-hmm. mentioned also, which is a bestseller. Yeah. And you know, I I mean, it's it's difficult not to think of him as a faddist, but as mm-hmm. a very neurotic when it comes to food. But you're right. Mm. You know a lot of the things that he said about food, and you know about like we eat salads now, which are mm. you know just and, and we take pleasure in that, which mm. I didn't realize mm. that earlier generations perhaps didn't. And the, all the, his ideas sound now, which now sound quite you know commonsensical, mm. might have been very outre for uh, I don't know. In the early twentieth century, but you know, you staying in that ashram and eating that food. Wow, what was it like? I mean, I know you write about it, but tell me honestly, was it did bore you completely, or is it like you mentioned? If you eat a lot of like the plainer food you eat, the more intense the pleasure. Is it like that really? Of some small things, you know. Well, the, the food was um, it was. Good food. It wasn't very rich. It was very uh, austere food, and mm. portions were also very small. And I think mainly they just used some salt to flavor it, and not that much uh, other things. And then the 
but it was very good change like after you know being in restaurants in bombay and eating all kinds of non veg and mm-hmm. seafood and all then to come to sevagram and and uh, just um, as a comparison uh, that simplicity of food that they managed to achieve there and the whole thing of like most of the food is something they grow in their own garden so even if you stay there as a paying guest because they had had some guest rooms uh, you're expected to participate in the gardening and you know weed uh, the grounds and do various chores so and mm. make yourself useful so mm. uh, on a whole it was a very interesting holistic experience and i think like uh, mahatma gandhi himself in uh, some of his writings called himself a faddist just you, like you you refer <laughs> yes. to him but i think yeah. he actually uses that uh, word well, uh, i might have taken himself. it from him <laughs> i might have yeah. taken it from him from yeah. that book so and it's an interesting fact like you mentioned that, that his book on uh, on uh, diet and health which is mm. like a very small book is actually uh, apparently at least in his lifetime it was his biggest bestseller Uh, mm-hmm. selling m- many more copies than his autobiography which is more famous to us mm-hmm. now mm-hmm. at that time the book that just was sold hundreds and millions of copies and translated into any number of languages it was his writings on food and like today we think of him or oh, he was a political leader who lived uh, long ago but mm-hmm. if you actually uh, encounter him through his ideas on food mm-hmm. he becomes surprisingly contemporary and 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 you would almost think that uh, like many of the more health conscious rest- restaurants that one can visit nowadays mm-hmm. um, across india you find uh, healthy restaurants that serve sattvic food and yes and, yes uh, that kind of things have come up on the menus many mm-hmm. of them are very similar to what he was already uh experimenting with uh, mm-hmm. i would say which is like yeah. uh, amazing that he was into that so early when uh, yeah. yeah and it has taken us so long to catch on and 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 see what he was trying to do in terms of healthy and he saw food more like um, i mean you eat to survive like you eat a, like a medicine you eat to like if you eat food uh, to keep yourself healthy you mm. actually don't have to go to doctors and have too many expensive surgeries and medical procedures but mm. actually the correct diet can can help you remain a healthy you know and then i saw this line which is what struck me a certain frugality might actually heighten the eating experience almost a la molecular gastronomy which is true right so is that what you experienced mm. there in a sense because um, i think I, i remember one vegetable dish that was it was just basically i think beetroot fried with salt oh. and and that's usually like you'll put all kinds of different flavorings and everything and the beetroot will not taste like beetroot anymore mm. but this was you know just a very uh, nice fulfilling beetroot flavor which you then could focus on and 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 he had uh, the mahatma he had a very some ideas that that um, in a meal you should only have at the most five different ingredients or you know like he tried to limit it in various ways how much you should eat and what you should eat and 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 so 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 that simplicity was um, a very interesting idea and and um, I don't know if it's exactly one could call it molecular gastronomy but <laughs> but it, it it's it goes somewhere in that direction in a way that you you mm. you uh you sort of refine the flavor until it's just like that flavor of the beetroot for example and and you enjoy that with some some chapatis that mostly taste of chapati don't taste of i mean they don't add much to to uh, as i write in my book there were many uh, foreign visitors to the ashram in that time who came there when uh, he was alive who found it really hard to to eat the food and i can imagine if i had stayed for a longer time i would have got bored with beetroot that's true uh, and also what i found very funny was this bit where you say that you know um, his whatever his uh, uh, entourage or the people who were with him mm. would play this game of uh, 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 like they'd give this list of things that would be eaten and were vegetables that were mm. not eaten mm. and then they try to uh, kind of test whether the whether the whoever was running the household had those specific vegetables or not mm. i found that hilarious <laughs> <laughs> he must have driven I, his horse up the wall with this uh, diet of his 
Yeah, I think that uh, particular thing you may refer to, it was something Nirad Chaudhary had written in uh, in one of his books, autobiographical books, because he was around at a time and, uh, when Gandhi was being hosted in Calcutta. And, and um, yeah, and people found it um, at that time um, quite challenging to feed him despite his austerity and despite <laughs> the simplicity of what he ate, because... He, his fads could also change a lot. So there were periods when he would just eat fresh fruits and particular fruits. And, and so you had to source those fruits or people mm-hmm. at least thought they had to source those fruits to honor him. Whereas yeah. I'm sure that he wouldn't have cared that much. If he was given a, a cooked potato, he would have been equally happy as if he <laughs> got, you know, pineapples and mangoes and oranges and, and, and all things. Um, mm. So, but I think like, uh, it seems like a lot of his time, the Mahatma was actively experimenting with, uh, you know, either eating or not eating. Like he had Mm -hmm. long periods when he was also fasting and and doing stuff like that. So, Mm -hmm. um, uh, so so it's a very interesting side to him that uh, one doesn't think that much of, especially considering that he was so thin, he didn't, you don't think of him as a food person, but yeah, but he spent a lot of time. Also, he, he, I, when, you know, when he was a child, he wasn't thinking that much of food, but mm-hmm. once he went to London to study, to be, uh, become a barrister, uh, mm-hmm. he, he realized that it's very difficult to get good vegetarian food in England, at least at that time, uh, in mm-hmm. uh, late 19th century, this was 1888. Um, so mm-hmm. at that time, you didn't get that much good vegetarian food. And, and if you would ask uh, his landlady where he was uh, staying as a, a paying guest for vegetarian food, she would just give him boiled cabbage. So <laughs> then he realized that he has to learn how to, uh, you know, cook himself. Mm-hmm. And, to, and at that time, he started creating various diets. And I, I've come across this often when with my Indian friends who have uh, lived abroad. Mm-hmm. They say that they discover a lot about themselves when they go abroad that they things they take for granted here in India mm-hmm. like when they go abroad and they realize that okay now I have to actually cook for myself and all for example then you know it, it, it makes them think about their Indianness in terms of food and what they eat mm-hmm. and what they don't eat and all that kind of thing and and many other ways um, I, I generally I mean I feel I've heard this from lots of people who have gone abroad that it's only there when you go to a foreign country that you discover how Indian you are Yes. That was even for me, you know, because mm. whenever I go abroad, if I go mm. to visit Sweden, mm. I find that, uh, you know, it's, I find it very difficult to to adjust there. Because, like, what? I mean, seriously, don't, yeah, it's very hard to get, say, masala dosa and sambar, vada sambar in Sweden. <laughs> like, you get tandoori chicken and palak paneer everywhere. Mm-hmm. But if you look for, for say, vada sambar, mm. there might be like one restaurant somewhere which has it. And, you know, also because there is such exclusive food. So the mm-hmm. Vatasambar, which I pay, you know, 20 bucks to eat here in India. Mm-hmm. There, you know, it'll be like 1,500 for a plate mm-hmm. of Vatasambar. Gosh, you can't digest that. <laughs> hard, hard to digest. So even I discover when I go abroad that how a customer I become to Indian food and how, you know, my India cuisine has shaped my taste and like uh, the kind of things I like to eat and... So when I'm in India, I don't generally miss Western food at all. Mm-hmm. But like when I go to the, uh, Europe, mm-hmm. I keep uh, looking for Indian food. And in some countries, like in Sweden, there's quite a lot of Indian restaurants and in England also. But mm-hmm. I was staying in Greece for a month once. Mm-hmm. And you know, there's only one Indian restaurant in all of Greece. What? It was very far. And I was thinking, like, should I go there? Or there may be more, but like I asked people and they said, oh, yeah, there is one in that town 200 kilometers away. God. And I was in Athens and in Athens, they didn't have Indian food at that time. So mm-hmm. I was thinking, should I travel 200 kilometers just to have a curry or <laughs> should I survive on Greek food? <laughs> Greek food's this, not this bad. Challenge. <laughs> so... Yeah, it's quite wholesome, but yeah. it's like uh, mutton chops, mutton chops, mutton chops. <laughs> um, you know, it's, it becomes tedious after a month to eat the same uh, yeah okay so uh, you know I also found like your essays you know there's so much information and you put it in a very uh, sort of uh, the reader doesn't realize and then oh, it's actually only when you um, 
when you come across something like you know this information about how Ahmedabad has this really fantastic Sunday flea market, I had no idea about it, and I'm like, that's mm-hmm. another thing I want to go and check out. And you know, uh, you've mentioned how Anjuna has its mm-hmm. flea market, and then you know Chor Bazaar in Bombay, and these are great flea markets. Yeah. But mm-hmm. uh, maybe the Ahmedabad one hasn't had enough publicity, but it sounds fantastic. You know, so you want to talk about that? Well, it's very different from the other ones, like the Anjuna flea market in in Goa. The flea markets, they are, it's often those are very touristic things. So there is yes. a lot of hippies, you know, and they yes. they bake pumpernickel uh, and uh, brown bread and make German sandwiches, and you know, yeah. it's a it's yeah. a largely a tourist thing. And even Indian tourists go there to check out the hippies and all. Yeah, that. and yeah. uh, Chor Chor Bazaar is also a bit of a myth in a way. Like yeah. you go there, you you don't make, really make any big bargain finds uh, yeah. because they it know used that. It to be great uh, in the nineties, till the nineties. Then I don't know now. Maybe it's like deteriorated. You know. Well, so. it's not deteriorated, but they know that. Uh, I mean, it's not like flea market rates anymore. They know that yes. people come there for experience. So you, whatever you want to buy, it's like a couple of thousand bucks. Yeah. Whereas yeah. This Ahmedabad flea market, it still is a is a. Um, uh, very classic traditional flea market and uh, i've been there a few times like way back in the say 20 years ago mm-hmm. it was very um, just just there on the river side on the under one of the bridges and spread out on this uh, river bank for like a few kilometers uh, up and down the river with all kinds of people who gathered every sunday morning to you know trade things and uh, mm-hmm. and and the last time I went a few years ago, it was still there, but the municipality had um, made it a little bit better. Like now you're not walking on the mud, but there's um, there's uh, proper streets and some kind oh. of um, facility to put up your wares to showcase oh. them. But it's still okay. um, very open, like all kinds of things people are selling. Anything from goats to to barbecue uh, grill uh, <laughs> this thing and and um, an amazing number of empty booze bottles, you no? Know, like because they have prohibition there, so the best you can hope for is that buy an empty fancy whiskey bottle to keep at home in your thing and and all kinds of people come there to buy things, even like students, arts. There's a lot of art students in Ahmedabad because they have these design schools. Yes, you can see those students picking up things and. And then there'd be the regular farmers and um, so it's very much uh, like a like a classic, almost like a mela, but without the mela part, uh, you know, okay. uh, uh, yeah. like no, no entertainments. It's just like people are bartering and selling and there's clothes and there's, you know, everything, tools and and um, like basically if you want to set up a house in Ahmedabad, you can just go there and for, you know, a couple of thousand, you can furnish your whole home. Wow, it sounds great. And I found, found this paragraph also really, really funny. The customers too are an intriguing mix of teenagers and geriatrics uh, on weekend outings, peasants and townspeople and Jola carrying art students foraging for stuff to incorporate um, into installations of found art. Once I'm done b- browsing, I ask the uh, broken vacuum cleaner seller who buys them. Uh, who buys them? Nobody. Then why sell? Why not? Well, ain't that true? Instead, I buy a remote control. There are different models on sale at a stall. Handheld units that have been long separated from whatever they were meant to steer. I'm not exactly sure what I can do with it, uh, uh, with it, except that it is, it's definitely lighter to carry home than half a vacuum cleaner. That's a really funny paragraph. What did you do with the remote? You just kept it or you... <laughs> um. Well, I still have it, but I've used it in some like videos. Uh, I'm part of a pop group. Okay. So uh, sometimes you can just uh, make like, uh, like we make, we make uh, music videos for our songs. Okay. So in some of those videos, I, I pretend that I'm, you know, steering one of the other band members to do things and, <laughs> and that kind of thing. So it's, it's, I use it like a prop when I need it. I mean, it's really handy to have a remote control at home, even if you don't have anything to control, you know. <laughs> yeah. But it, it gives you a feeling of control, if you know what I mean. Yeah. 
period. So, uh, you know, what was the most, which bit of the book did you find a challenge to write? You know, I read the prologue, uh, prologue and the prologue is interesting. But do you still agree? Like, because now the world has opened up again and I feel like, mm. you know, all of us have gone back with a vengeance. Uh, you know, at least in a mm. place like Gurga, Gurgaon where I mm. live, mm. everything is much more crowded than it was pre-pandemic. Uh, you know, huh. and I don't know what it's like in Bangalore, but here definitely everybody is, um, it's multiplied. Like it's like before if we used to go out and I'm not, I'm including myself also in it. I guess mm. you know, like one full year of not going out much has affected us in the sense and now we want to overdo it. And a lot of like mm. everything is now, I don't know, even if there's another pandemic, I don't know if anybody's going to be locked down, you know. Mm. So, that bit, I, I, I thought maybe not. What did you, you know, mm. in your prologue, you were talking about the whole experience of the pandemic and the fear that the world wouldn't go back to what it was. But now I, f- I feel like, you know, even tourism is going to like jump up and it's mm. not going to, uh, uh, we're going to see everybody traveling much more. Already it's happening. You know? mm. What do you think? Well, uh, yeah, it's uh, difficult to say because like, um, like when I was writing the prologue, of course, it seemed like a very long time until one can travel again. And even yeah. now there are like, uh, there's a certain unpredictability to it, uh, to traveling mm. uh, even now. Because like mm. like in the winter, I went to um, Southeast Asia for a month, traveling around in the Southeast Asian countries. Mm. Uh, and then when I was on, and it was fine to go there and it was all okay. But then when I was coming back, suddenly there was uh, a new wave that seemed to be start starting. Yeah. And uh, and then I landed back in Bangalore and it was okay. There was like, uh, um, like it was easy to enter India. But then just a few days later, they started uh, testing passengers again. And you had yeah. to carry a, a, a test certificate with you. Mm-hmm. So... So suddenly there's that thing that you don't, can't we really sure whether borders will be open uh, again or, you know, suddenly mm. closed or, or there'll be some travel restrictions. So it's still difficult to know. And like, even if COVID might not return, some other bird flu or something like that might come. So, yeah. so, so planning travel has become a little bit more difficult. So in the mm. last, since um, so the last couple of years, I've been mostly traveling, doing domestic travel in India. Yeah. And that is one thing that is uh, quite interesting because when we think of travel, we think of going abroad or something like that. Yeah. But uh, to discover places in India that are closer to your home, mm. I think that is part of a um, um, uh, global trend. Like in many other countries, people have started, you know, visiting just nearby towns because it's easier in case some yes. lockdown yes. happens. You can return home quickly you know, yeah. within driving distance. So, yeah. so instead of going to like the famous tourist sites, one might uh, choose to go to some smaller place, but which is um, at a more convenient distance. So, uh, like a lot of my Travel in the last few years have been that kind of thing, like traveling up and down the Karnataka coast, for example, and rather than going to Goa, because uh, otherwise one might go to Goa because there are fancier restaurants and everything like that. But instead, mm-hmm. it sort of gives me, because I live in Karnataka, yeah. it gives me and, you know, that uh, push to like, why not uh, explore the beaches of Karnataka and, uh, you know, the coastal belt and, and uh, so, Things have changed a bit like that, but I think hopefully this whole pandemic now is over because I feel that we all probably have had COVID so many times that um, COVID has given up on us <laughs> and we have luckily not given up uh, against COVID. But uh, and in, like, you know, at positive moments, I try to think of it that, oh, now we are really a global brotherhood and sisterhood because we all have the same bat virus inside our noses or wherever it is lurking, mm. you know. So yeah. we, we sort of have become a, a blood brothers and blood sisters or at least uh, uh, mucus brothers and mucus sisters or you know uh, <laughs> something like that uh, with the help of this uh, covid mm. i mean if it's something that almost every human now has on the planet yes yes that's been exposed to so which was the most difficult chapter for you to write well that's a difficult question because they're all difficult in many different ways but um, 
I think like I have a slight bias to South India because mm. I've been living in South India for so long. So I feel very much at home in South India. So it's kind of easier for me to write about South India. And when I go to North India, it feels a bit like I'm in a foreign country or, you know, like a, it's a culture very different. Mm. So, uh, so it's more challenging in that sense that like one tries to get everything right and hopefully understand all the uh, everything so there's no you know major errors in the book and so on mm. so but it's tricky like you know to write about an environment is which is not exactly your own and then yes. uh, as a writer i i try not to exoticize too much yeah, but like yeah. you know to keep it an like an exciting but not over exotic uh, level but Mm. Um, and and there's always that risk as a travel writer when you go to a place which you're not too familiar with you uh, what you do is you pick up the cliches and you write about the cliches and you know mm. Delhi is like this or uh, Ahmedabad is like this or and uh, and okay, some kind of stereotypes rather than um, uh, like I like since I've been living in Bangalore for so long I think I can give a very nuanced picture of the city yes. uh, easier than let's say if I write about Delhi okay. so um, so that's uh, but that's also the challenge and the adventure and the fun of uh, of travel writing when you you write about different places you visited to um, uh, kind of find the soul of that place or or something like that i don't know exactly how to put it but and mm. then capture it um but there's always that risk that like when you're far away from home you you do some kind of a cliched postcard version of, uh, mm. of the mm. place and 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 you, you won't understand it correctly like mm. for example when i in the end of the book i actually go uh, visit the foreign country which is bhutan and um, we met in Bhutan, by the way. I mean, I don't know. Oh, at the literary festival. <laughs> yes, <laughs> long ago. Like, very long Many ago. Years ago. Yeah, 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 yeah. 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 So to go up to a place like that and try to write some, you know, sensibly about it and get yeah. it, you know, uh, that feeling that uh, uh, people might agree that ah, this is very much like Bhutan because I wanted to have it as a contrast to India like mm -hmm. India is such a huge country and Bhutan is this tiny 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 country so I thought like let me just end there oh. but um, but it's difficult but uh, but did it convince you was it that your experience of Bhutan also similar to mine when you went there did you recognize it or did you feel that oh he went to a different country he's right no, there. no I recognized it I recognized it mm -hmm. of course you know but uh, my my particular favorite was actually Chandigarh. Your piece on Chandigarh, I really loved ah. because you know you, you, you I, like when I went to Chandigarh, I what I thought was that wow, this is like the past vision of the future, <laughs> you know, mm. and you caught mm. that somehow in the uh, the say and then, but you also taken it further and saying that this it might be one of the most what did you say? Some most livable or the uh, city in India now, right? You said something like that, or the uh, best. Yeah, I think something like that because I mean, in terms of the, like when they built it, they sort of anticipated the infrastructure, like the infrastructure challenges of today. So, for mm -hmm. example, first time I went to Chandigarh some thirty years ago, mm -hmm. you would walk in these huge broad streets. Yes. And uh, there would just be one cycle rickshaw 30 kilometers away at the other end of the street, yeah. uh, which you try to wave for. And um, But now when traffic has, um, there's more private cars and everything. So when traffic has grown, Chandigarh is still able to handle that traffic volume. I mean, you don't have traffic jams in Chandigarh, mm -hmm. despite uh, what a big town it is. So uh, also that perception has changed because I remember long time ago i was talking with this um, famous indian architect called gerarda kunha who is yes, um, yes. like very path breaking architect based in goa and who yes. builds like uh, very nature oriented uh, houses you know houses that belong i mean he's very gandhian in that sense that you know material should come from the spot itself you should yes. not take it from far away you should mm. look at like what the, the geography of the place and build according to that and so he, when I was chatting with him, he was also, he was very critical of Chandigarh and questioning, like, why do they build cities like that when they, you know, the traditional Indian cityscape with the winding bazaars, narrow streets, it's actually best for the 
or the suit, most suited for the climate in a sense because in these narrow streets it doesn't get too hot because you have shade even if the sun is high in the sky and all mm-hmm. so he was very much for you know the traditional indian building style but at mm-hmm. that time you know we were having this chat some 25 years ago or even longer ago mm-hmm. so at that time you didn't have all these modern big cars like you yeah. had uh, ambassadors and like very small cars and uh, very few cars so yes. these issues of traffic jams were not there but now in bangalore everybody mm-hmm. has to have a car that is twice as big as everybody else's car and uh, um, i think i give some numbers there or something like how traffic has grown is growing in bangalore yes you know how how many thousand vehicles new vehicles are put on the streets every day mm-hmm. in bangalore i remember chatting with an auto rickshaw driver when i was going to the uh, somewhere and he told me uh, 10 years ago 15 years ago this distance that we traveling we would have taken only 15 minutes yeah. because it's just a few kilometers now you have to count on one hour one and a half hours to cover this distance oh, just to get through the traffic yeah, yeah. so if even an auto rickshaw driver makes this kind of observations um, then um, i think like uh, something needs to be done about to yeah. because having smooth traffic is very important to enjoying a city that's uh, true that's true yeah. but uh, i mean i don't know going forward what the states of our state of our cities is going to be because also there's the population and the pressure on mm. resources so it's like such a mm. complicated issue you know and i mean one doesn't know where it's going but hopefully mm. it'll be going more in the chandigarh mode <laughs> you know uh, because... yeah maybe like if people start planning ahead and, and yeah. uh, but the one thing is that like for example i notice myself uh, i used to go into town and eat in restaurants several times a day in bangalore mm. Mm. and uh, now maybe i go to another part of town once a month to have a meal in a restaurant yes. if it's like a very exciting restaurant Mm, and so yeah. that whole uh, thing has changed like i mean it's not good for the restaurant culture if if too time consuming for people to travel to come to a restaurant but on the other hand another trend that i've noticed recently is like if one lives in suburban bangalore mm. almost all the areas have evolved kind of food streets or areas where you have branches of uh, famous restaurants and then you have some local restaurants depending on who like uh, mm-hmm. in bangalore where i live there there's a big student area you have mm-hmm. a lot of these student restaurants that serve uh, all kinds of ethnic food in a, uh, what you call yes. because students come from everywhere so they, you'll find like bihari restaurant that does litti chokka you'll find yeah. kerala restaurants that uh, do like the, all the famous kerala dishes and you'll find you know everything in between bengali food and and uh, not various north indian foods rajasthani food and all like mm-hmm. in our area so mm-hmm. so that way also like that's a good development because then i don't really have to go to another part of town but i can just walk across to this area where all these restaurants are and there'd be all kinds of restaurants like cheap restaurants for the students and a little more more fancy restaurants for the well heeled students and youths <laughs> yeah um, and then like old people like me are also welcome to eat yeah that old <laughs> not really but like uh, compared to like how the youngsters yeah. are sitting in restaurant all the time and starting to feel a little bit uh, jaded or uh, like. yeah and also this the appearance of like effective rapid transport systems like you mentioned in the delhi chapter uh, you know a lot of people from gurgaon and and uh, you know noida and places like this we go often to delhi just to eat you know and it's like mm. because you can jump on the metro huh. and just go there get off you know in an hour's time eat there in parathi wali gali right like chowk and yeah yeah in chandni right. chowk yeah. like you have mentioned yeah. like those people have said mm. and then you jump back on and you're home quickly without the mess of traffic you know that's also there there are new ways of like i guess it's a sort of yeah. that's also touristy but it's still enjoyable local you know well yeah i think like the metro in delhi the way they built it is uh, nothing short of a miracle i mean it's so well developed and and it reaches almost all parts of town not everywhere yeah. maybe but but like uh, largely almost anywhere you can go there'll be a metro station within one or two kilometers of 
So if you want to, if you're in Delhi and you want uh, Afghan food, you can go to that Lajpat Nagar area yeah. where all yeah. those Afghani restaurants are. And if you want that old Delhi food, uh, then Chandni Chowk has a metro station. If you want hippie food, you can get off at Ashram uh, Marg and go to Bharganj and eat yeah. all these, you know, there are all these Israeli hippies that have these hummus restaurants and all kinds of... So you know, that way... Yeah. That way, like somebody should uh, design a, a metro food store package in Delhi. No? That would be great. So I could travel around the city and try all the cuisines of India and the world. Wow, that's a good idea. I hope whoever is listening to this podcast, you know, maybe one of them will decide to do it. You know, you know. Now for the last uh, bit of the conversation, uh, what I really liked about your book, I mean, you've been here for like 30 years, three decades, you know, it's a long time. And I didn't, I mean, uh, if I didn't know that you are, you know, you're not, by birth an Indian, I wouldn't like it doesn't come across as somebody who doesn't know what he's you know like he from a different culture. So I think that's a like real achievement, you know. And mm, oh, did you, you have to like did you have to like work at that or it just came to you, you know? Um well I think I'm I am naturally a very curious person. So I like to find out about things, you know, if there's something I I hear about or uh, come across spot mm-hmm. in the streets and I don't understand it then I just want to kind of understand what it is all about and so so that way I think it's like a natural part of myself to 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 try to uh, understand India since I'm anyway living here mm-hmm. I would I don't I've never had this feeling like I sometimes my, when I meet these so-called expats who are like foreigners settled here to work for a few years mm-hmm. and I talk with them I notice that they don't actually do they, they're not actually in India they live in some <laughs> gated communities and then <laughs> like if they go out and eat they seek out you know continental restaurants or you know Italian mm-hmm. restaurants or whatever mm-hmm. and they very rarely go to Darshini's to have uh, vada sambar or, mm-hmm. or you know uh, do the things that uh, we normal Indian Indians do. So mm-hmm. I try to like, like in my attitude to be more like, uh, I want to be like a normal Indian and I do normal Indian things like in terms of the kind of restaurants I go to and, and what I eat and what I try. So I, I, I find uh, it uh, in a way as a, not as a duty or obligation, but like I, I find this, a good thing to try to integrate like mm. you know whichever country i would move to i would mm. try to be a good citizen of that country and you know understand that country instead of uh, being some kind of a eternal guest who is just passing through mm. so i think i've gone with that attitude in mind and and um, and i often come across this thing like when i when i speak with uh, when i'm in north india for example and i talk, talk with people Mm-hmm. Um, they'll be looking at me a little bit like, uh, you're South Indian, are you? And like in South India, you know, when I talk with people, they look at me a little strangely, you must be North Indian, you know? They don't say, oh, you're European. And like once when I went, was in Goa, uh, I went to this bar and I ordered uh, a fanny, which is like their national drink. And I ordered a particular type of fish that tourists never order. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the bartender looked at me and said, sir, are you Goan? And that was like, you know, like a great compliment in a way because I don't look very Goan at all. But like the way I just ordered the food, he sort of got confused that, oh, he can't be foreigner. Only a Goan would order this particular combination, you know. So, and so that is, uh, like I always try to kind of understand what goes on locally and and like Mm -hmm. being local. So I think in my writing also it shows that I, 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 prefer like local stuff to global stuff you know so i think that's comes sort of naturally to me great okay so uh, with that we'll end now for for the for the listeners go out and get digesting india a travel writer's subcontinental adventures uh, with the tummy it's a it's a great read it's great fun and actually it gives you a lot of information you know um, I, you have a lot of insights it's also um, in parts it makes you laugh because uh, zach's observations are 
kind of spot on also and also different so you know there are uh, you know Zach really there were uh, parts when I really laughed out loud and also there was there were things that told me like you know I I had no idea though uh, you know my family is Nair I had no idea that that put though of course I'm like a very bad you know ethnically a Malayali but I grew up in Bombay mm. so the Bombay uh, bits were very interesting and so were the Kerala bits and so are the Delhi bits but um, that thing when you said that the putters are uh, kind of general food of Nair's, I had no idea. I mean, I have been eating it all my life, but I had no idea. So I, you know, I what I found great about the book is that it told me a lot of things about myself also. And I'm sure it'll mm-hmm. tell the readers a lot of things about wherever they're from or whatever their connections are. And I think that's the great thing about this book. Thank you so much for talking to me. Okay, thank you so much. It was really enjoyable to have this chat and to hear that you approve of the book. (laughs) Okay, bye. Okay, bye. Take care. You too, bye. This was a Hindustan Times production brought to you by HD Smartcast. HD Smartcast. Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus, a central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions.